1: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party podcast. This one featuring Labour's Shadow Secretary of State for Health and the MP for Leicester South, Jonathan Ashworth. It was meant to feature Margaret Hodge and Margaret sadly wasn't able to do the show so we're going to rearrange a date in the future. Um, And Jonathan is someone I've known for a long time back when I worked for the party. He was working for Gordon Brown and we got to know each other. I've wanted to interview him for for quite some time now, especially as he's risen uh, to be one of um, Labour's most visible uh, and brightest stars. It's a fascinating conversation. You may have seen him on the news recently talking about his father's alcoholism very movingly, and that's something that we that we do touch upon, that he talks about um, in a very heartfelt way. Um, we also talk about his time working for Gordon, working for the party, uh, and his time now serving uh, under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, for someone who's still so young in politics, he's done and achieved a remarkable amount. Um, so, at times, it's very serious, at times, it's very funny, um, and very different to some of the other interviews that I've done uh, recently. And it's often perhaps about where people are in their careers. Um, When I think of the Paddy Ashdown night and the the sort of uh, stories that he had reflecting on a very long career in politics, it's very different when you're talking to someone like Jonathan who's still very much in the white heat of battle and probably has most of his career stretching out before him. Um, So it was... uh, just uh, marginal differences in tone, in a good way. That you're that you're talking to someone who is still very much uh, an active politician. Um, he was absolutely brilliant. So enjoy uh, enjoy the show. Also, um, I've got a second series of Unspun starting, and tickets for that are free. You can get audience tickets for that at TVrecordings dot com. We start recording on the twenty eighth of February, which is in just a few days' time, uh, and that's for six weeks. So do come along to that. Thank you for downloading. As always. And I'll we'll see you on the other side. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, first things first. Um, I forgot my shoes. <laughs> Hence the reason I'm wearing trainers. Uh, I realise that I've looked like I've come to give you a talk on working at Google. <laughs> um, but this is just a mistake. So apologies if that detracts from anything. But welcome to the show. Uh, give me a cheer if you've been here before. <laughs> welcome, Raker. Just give me a cheer if this is your first time. Oh, a few newbies, welcome to the show. Um, of course, uh, fascinating times we're living in, and um, the Stoke by-election is tomorrow. Oh, and Copeland, has anyone been campaigning on any of them? Yay! Well, of course, Jonathan and his guests. Uh, it would be a little bit rude if tonight's Labour MP hadn't been to uh, to, to either Stoke or Copeland, but no-one else.
0: That's twice <laughs> to both.
1: You've been twice to both?
0: have been twice to both. Yeah. And what do you
1: think will happen? Uh. <laughs> That's how you shut them up these days. Very rowdy Labour people until you start talking about results. Um, but welcome. Interesting second half on the way. Um, Labour's candidate, if you're not familiar with him uh, in Stoke, is Gareth Snell. Um, he's not a nice guy. Uh, let me tell you something about him. He, he's, he doesn't seem to like women very much. Uh, he's tweeted, uh, his previous tweets got him in, in trouble. He tweeted about. Uh, a soap character that he'd like to slap uh, called a candidate on The Apprentice a specky bird um, and as a result he's had to apologise for all these previous tweets and uh, on the news this week he said not only did he apologise to the people of Stoke he'd also apologise to his daughter his mother and his grandma <laughs> sort of overdoing it a bit <laughs> ringing up your grandma going hello gran it's Gareth
2: <laughs> Gareth <laughs>
1: no 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 not, not Harold it's Gareth yeah, I just wanted to say sorry. I wanted to say sorry. No, for, for calling that woman on telly a bitch. A bitch. No, not you, you dozy old cat. Right, no, I'm sorry about that as well. He'd get himself into so much trouble. He's repeatedly been offensive, apparently. Uh, and he also called um, Jeremy Corbyn. An IRA-supporting friend of Hamas, um, uh, which Corbyn thanked him for. uh, First time he's been accurately represented in quite a while. So he's quite happy with that. Um, He's written a poem as well about Brexit that he also had to apologise for. Um, Hard Brexit. I don't know if anyone follows Gareth on Twitter. But this was his uh, poem. Soft Brexit, hard Brexit, massive pile of shit. Sloppy Brexit, messy Brexit, quit, quit, quit. We should just apologise for being crap, really, rather than being offensive. But it doesn't bode well for his maiden speech if he gets elected. Uh, Gareth Snell, Gareth Snell, I'll take Stoke from rags to riches. Gareth Snell, Gareth Snell, women are all bitches. Oh my God, I've done it again, I just have to apologise. To my mother, my grandmother, my fucking unborn children and everyone else. Uh, The UKIP candidate, of course, is their leader, Paul Nuttall, to give him his full title, Dr. Paul Nuttall, OBEQC. said on his website. Um, the only man to ever claim to have lived in Stoke and not lived there.
2: Uh, <laughs> people
1: tend to do the opposite. No, I don't live in Stoke. No, actually, I live in, uh, in newcastle under Lyme. <laughs> That's the house prices. No one ever lies about living there if they don't live there. Um, he also claimed, of course, uh, to have lost close personal friends at Hillsborough, which um, is an incredible claim to make, uh, especially for a former member of the Beatles.
2: <laughs>
1: so there's only so many you can get away with in these, really. Uh, the sort of lies he's been telling, though, for those of you not, not aware, he, he claims to have been a doctor, he claims to have been a professional footballer with Tranmere Rovers, he claims to have lost friends at the Hillsman Disaster. I mean, these are all kind of... These are the sort of lies you tell at school. Next week he's going to claim to have a girlfriend in the year above, and to uh, <laughs> also shagged her sister. Uh, the problem I have with Paul Nuttall is... I trust him less when he's telling the truth than I trusted Farage when he was lying. <laughs> but I find Farage's lies more believable than Paul Nuttall when he's telling the truth. Farage just has a sort of gravitas. A kind of look, I know what I'm on about, because otherwise, why would I say it this confidently? And it's like, oh. He does seem sure, at least. <laughs> Paul Nuttall could stand here today and say, I stand here before you on the 22nd of February 2017 at roughly ten past eight... And I go, he's full of shit. You <laughs> can tell it's March by the look on his face. Something. Whereas Farage could say, have you heard what they're doing now? The EU wants to replace cycle lanes with no lanes for space hoppers. <laughs> they never are, they. Really. <laughs> I would believe that more than anything he came out with. But uh, Nuttall's had a, had a funny campaign. Um, my, my highlight of the campaign so far, and if you haven't been on the Stoke Central <laughs> website, do go on there. One of UKIP's members has been caught pissing on the house yeah. of a constituent yeah. <laughs> that he then puts a leaflet through the letterbox. <laughs> <of her. laughs> He's gone out leafleting, and this woman's got her own private CCTV. So you see it on the camera on the website. He sort of goes down the side of the house. He has a little look, goes down the alleyway, pisses up against the wall, puts a leaflet through, and then she's seen it. She comes out and confronts him, and she goes, Hey, what's you doing? Hey, I've just seen what you've done down there. And the first thing he says is, um, Can I use your toy?
2: <laughs>
1: Which is brazen, to be fair to him. Uh, she then sends him off, and he just goes off apologising. You end up feeling quite sorry for him. Uh, and you have released a statement saying, Oh, you can't be annoyed with him because he's got prostate issues. Don't send him out leaflet on his own, then. <laughs> yeah, sorry he wanked to the bin. He's got testosterone issues. We need to... Uh, we really need to have a word with him. But, like, how, is this the new way that UKIP are going to start campaigning? By, like, marking their territory with...
2: <laughs>
1: Maybe it's how they let the other UKIP canvassers know that they've finished the area. <laughs> um, obviously, of course, this month, the big return, Tony Blair, is back.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Something like a fucking cattle market. Here. What happened to uh, Blair's back. I went to the big event, of course. I mean, it's not going to see Dylan, innit? <laughs> i sort of, never quite sure how many more times you might get to see him live, so you have to, you have to sort of go along. Uh, and it was great. You know, he's got that great skill of sounding absolutely profound, frankly. Um, even when sometimes not even seen much. And, oh, that's a fucking great point. He's really on this. And, of course, in America, Donald Trump, who is... Uh, an endless source. I'm trying to get the full impression now. I've got the dance and, and the lips. <laughs> right, that's very good. Very good. It's going to be great. Uh, it's just default setting. It's just it's beautiful. It's great. We're, it's a smooth, Finally Everything's going well. Uh, we're winning, by the way. We're doing so well. Everyone says it. <laughs> it's incredible. It's just all these... So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I appreciate that, by the way. That's very good. Uh, these guys, they voted for Hillary, by the way. They're applauding me, so that's that's what's happening. We're winning people over all the time. We're doing so good. <laughs> I'm right. a wonderful dad. He's the only president, by the way. I think what's the real novelty about him is he always lets you know when he's learned stuff. You know what uranium is, right? <laughs> a thing called nuclear weapons and other things that are like bad things. I think he's just learned that today, and he's coming home to tell us and hopes that we'll put it on the fridge. (laughs) You know what oxygen is, right? Yeah, it's a gas, I found out that today. It's like helium. Uh, It looks like helium, because you can't see it right, I knew that. I knew that already, by the way. (laughs) Helium is very different. It makes your voice go squeaky, okay? Very different. They got it in balloons, by the way. They go up. (laughs) I could just do it. (laughs) he invents things as well if he's stuck in if he's backed into a corner you know like the Swedish thing that happened the incident in Sweden the other night in fact the incident in Sweden was so severe uh, Paul Nuttall claims to have lost close personal friends <laughs> 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 he, he mimics people that he's talking about as well like he probably does that. he's a pub he's a pub chatter so just like they, you know people keep saying oh Donald Trump he's not serious oh he rants and he raves I don't mind and rave."
2: <laughs>
1: and I get these people saying to me he's not serious, he doesn't read the brief I read the briefs every But like, no other world leader that I can ever remember has when they're trying to set out their stall mimicked someone like for I know I often use Blair as an example but because he was naturally diplomatic but can you ever imagine him saying and of course when we deal with crime and I was in Nottingham earlier this week talking to a young lady her life blighted by her time on that estate and you know what she said to me? She said, why are you letting kill her? Why are you sending her down prison? She's doing full call. <laughs> I said, well it. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, a wonderful guest in the second half and you're already a wonderful crowd. The guest had been uh, advertised as Margaret Hodge, uh, who sadly uh, couldn't be here tonight um, for personal reasons. We have a wonderful replacement in Jonathan Ashworth, who's Labour's Shadow Secretary of State for Health. I've known him quite a long time, and I used to work for the party, I've gotten very well with him. He's very funny, he's exceptionally bright, and he's a huge rising star in the Labour movement, and potentially, uh, um, yes, we'd say this, a potentially a future Prime Minister. So, uh, we're blessed tonight with our company, ladies and gentlemen. I'll see you in about 15 minutes. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, Tonight's guest is someone that I've been uh, wanting to interview for a long time. Um, When I was working for Labour back in 2005, uh, Jonathan was one of the most revered advisers in the Labour Party. Um, He was working for Gordon Brown. He then uh, went to work for Gordon in Number Ten, became an MP, and is now uh, holding a a very important brief for the Labour Party. He's the Shadow Secretary of State for Health. Uh, He's a An exceptionally bright, talented, and funny bloke, uh, and he's also recently spoken very movingly uh, about how his father's relationship with alcohol affected him, which I'm sure many of you will have seen and and will have been very impressed by. Please give a huge political party welcome to Jonathan Ashworth.
3: (laughs) I like to bring this on, of course.
1: (laughs) 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 Yes, you're allowed to. You're allowed to booze. I think I think Farage is the only other guest that's had a drink on stage.
3: Oh right, well, uh, I'm glad I'm the, as the Shadow Health Secretary, I'm up there with a uh, uh, bottle of fancy Italian lager, so I'm pleased with that, yeah.
1: Do you have to, if you have a brief like health, do you, are you, is that in the back of your mind that you have to be seen sort of not eating burgers and drinking beer and smoking fags?
3: Uh, well, I don't smoke fags. Um, what do you smoke? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't smoke anything. Um, uh, I do try to do a bit of running. Um, I'm going to be running the marathon uh, oh, in uh, a few okay. weeks' time. Uh, that's the plan, anyway. A few weeks? Of course, yes. In April. It is in April. Uh, do you want to run it with me?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not this year.
3: So, um, and I was actually running this morning in London, across um, Chelsea Bridge, I think it was, and coming in the other direction, running was Jeremy Hunt. So there we were, the health secretary and the shadow health secretary passing each other <laughs> on Chelsea Bridge at seven o'clock in the morning. Running. It. <laughs> did, did, did you acknowledge each other? I went, Jeremy! And what he goes, did he say? Not the face, not the face. <laughs> <laughs> he sort of looked a bit surprised, actually. He always does, though, doesn't he? Yeah. always got that sort of look on his face. He always looks like he's about to burst into tears,
1: doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> What's he like, then, as a, as a person to shadow? Because often what happens with, with politics is that the individuals become the fixation of all the anxiety. Yeah. You say, Hunt must go, and Hunt's done this to the NHS even if he is carrying out Theresa May or, or David Cameron's wishes. Dealing with him, as you must do behind the scenes, what's your impression of him?
3: Well, I quite like him on a personal level, but then I... You know, I, you, know you can have political opponents in life and you can disagree with them vehemently, but I don't think it helps anything if you personalise matters too much. So I always try to maintain a good civil uh, relationship with him. But when I'm at the dispatch box, so I do go for him... And he does get a bit upset with me. I said the other week, uh, just when uh, uh, La La Land won all the awards at the Golden Globes, I said, uh, I know La La Land won, all the, won, won the Golden Globes last night, but I didn't realise Jeremy Hunt was living there. And he got really upset with me after that. He actually cancelled the meeting we were going to have with him later that week. So he does, get, um, he, does get a, he, he does get quite upset, actually. But that's the sort of knock about stuff you do in the House of Commons. And, and, so of, and obviously a joke like that in the House of Commons, everyone thinks is hilarious. Out here it gets a bit of a titter, but in the House of Commons, people think it's the funniest thing you've ever said, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> but will he say to you, there was no need for that, John?
3: Well, he sort of looks sort of disapproving at me, like I'm a sort of naughty schoolboy or something, and sort of shakes his head. And then, we get, and then we get back to the office and the message comes through that he's cancelled the meeting again. So uh, um, there we are. But, you know, I, I, it doesn't help to um, personalise things too much I mean we've got to focus on the issues that's what Tony Benn always used to say the issues you can probably do a Tony Benn impression oh
1: yeah I, I always <laughs> say focus on the issues yeah, uh, yeah. and attacking Tony Blair those two things see I still out for you there <laughs> didn't I tailed I, off huh? a bit yeah. <laughs> um, so with with him um, then what because it's always fascinating to know what the relationships is like. like how often do you talk to him on the phone or see him face to face not in the house
3: not very often Um he sent me a Christmas card, uh, which was very nice of him. Personalised. Uh, yes, yeah, so and, and I sent him a Christmas card too, and uh, you know we all exchange text messages every now and again. But as I say, he sort of gets up, he gets a bit upset with me. It seems when, I mean I'm right on the telly every bloody day having a go at them over <laughs> the state of the health service. You know what I mean? So. I think that gets on his nerves a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of
1: Labour's assessment then of the NHS, because it it came up at PMQs today and it it was really something that Cameron used for a long period of time, was this idea that Labour had gone into the 2010 election promising effectively cuts. And this is something that's always hung around the neck of successive Labour leaders now, which is, well, you'd have cut, so why complain when we would? Is that, do you think, a fair assessment of Labour's position in 2010, and and has the position changed in terms of funding?
3: No, no, I don't think it is fair, because you've got to remember what's happening to the NHS now. It's going through the largest financial squeeze in its history. And next year, head for head, money will actually be cut in this country on the NHS. And when you look at the statistics, and many of you here will have seen it on on your television screens, uh, you know, the ambulances backed up outside A&Es, the numbers of people waiting on trolleys in corridors. Did you know, seven years ago, Uh, The numbers of people waiting on a trolley in a corridor uh, beyond four hours was about 6,000. Do you know what it is today? More than that. 53,000 people. (laughs) Holy shit. 53,000 people waiting on trolleys in corridors beyond four hours. And then you look at the A&E targets, they've not met the A&E target now for two years. Uh, Urgent cancer operations are being cancelled. Uh, People are literally going into hospital in the morning, expecting to have an operation. They have to hang around all day to find out if there's a bed or not. And then at sort of 5 o'clock, half past 5, they're told to go home. Sorry, we're going to have to rearrange your operation. This is what is happening in the NHS. And the point about the funding is this. Don't let anyone tell you we cannot afford the NHS. This is a government that has given away billions in tax cuts to big corporations. It's given away billions in tax cuts for capital gains tax on share transactions. The wealthiest estates, one million pound estates, are going to be getting a one billion pound tax cut. And in the recent autumn statement, they put money into building new grammar schools and there wasn't even an extra penny piece for hospitals and social care. So don't let anyone tell you that, you know, uh, we can't afford the NHS. We can, but this government are making a different set of choices and decisions.
1: So in terms of funding the NHS then, in terms of how much more money it needs, yeah. Because obviously, the, the, the sort of taps were turned on in the new Labour uh, era. Uh, Cameron's government put extra money in. Uh, the, the investment has slowed since then. How much extra does Labour say the NHS needs every year to be the sort of, not just, to, not just to improve the service, but to be the sort of, effectively, the ideal service that we would all want?
3: Well, I mean, there's different estimates, and there's different experts out there who will give you different uh, suggestions. But usually what happens is the NHS gets more or less a 4% increase a year. Uh, at the moment, it's uh, essentially um, flatlining uh, and it should really get that 4% increase. When we were in government, the Labour Party was in government, and Gordon Brown was the Chancellor uh, in 2001, he increased national insurance to pay for the NHS. And the Labour government trebled the investment going into the NHS. Under this government, it's going to be head for head, it'll be, going to be cut next year. So that's, that's the difference. But I would say in the next few weeks, the priority would have to be the social care sector. Because what is happening now, because there isn't any support in the community for elderly people, they can't get the support they need in their homes, or they can't get the support they need in residential care homes, they're trapped in hospital. There's nowhere to go, and that's putting huge pressure on the NHS. So, you know, I would say you've got a budget coming up in a couple of weeks' time, if the government are going to do anything, they should put some extra investment into the, into the social care sector. In terms of finding
1: the money then for the NHS, would it be, would your preference be to sort of put up taxes or, or, or get money for the private sector, cut other parts of the government budget to,
3: to, to fund the well, NHS? I mean, I, I don't think they need to be pushing ahead with these big cuts to corporation tax. That's where I'd start. If, as I say, if they've got money to put into building new grammar schools... Why do they need to put money into grammar schools? Is there really a demand and an appetite for new grammar schools in the country at the moment? I mean, does that really, should that really be a spending priority of the government? Or should it really be a spending priority to cut capital gains tax for share transactions? So there's a whole host of tax cuts which are being introduced for very, very wealthy people and very, very wealthy corporations, mm. which I would argue don't need to go ahead. You know, don't cut those taxes and put the money into the NHS instead.
1: So when you say this stuff to Jeremy Hunt behind closed doors, does he say, like, you know, I kind of agree, but Theresa won't allow it, or ideologically I disagree?
3: Can you do a Jeremy Hunt impression?
2: (laughs) No, I can't.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I
3: certainly can't
1: do one of him running. (laughs) He's
3: not very distinctive, really, is he? uh... He's got that
1: sort of weird... (laughs) Look on his face, always. I can't do an impression of him. Can you? No. (laughs) (laughs) But does does he ever say, look, man... Breaking my balls—it's those guys up there.
3: You go, don't <laughs> no, 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 no—he doesn't. Um, no, he doesn't. He doesn't really say very much, to be honest. <laughs> he, he walks. I mean, as I say, because I normally say I have a go at him at the dispatch box about. Oh, I normally come out with some wisecrack uh, or other, and he, and he sort of goes off in a huff. So no, he doesn't. He doesn't no. hang around behind the behind the scenes to sort of, you know, say, oh, well, you know, by the way, we're doing this and that. No, not really.
1: Um, that's quite interesting, isn't it? So. Sort of, when you've shadowed other people. Yeah. Did you have different relationships Just with them? Beer, t- oh, as absolutely, as get the beer in,
3: mate. By the way, this is gluten free. Isn't that fancy? Fancy what? fancy gluten free lager. Look at that. It's fancy that, isn't it? I don't like the sound You don't of get that in Nottingham,
1: do you, Matt? <laughs> no, you don't, no. You don't get Peroni in Nottingham. <laughs> gluten free. It's Scholar, <skull>, I think. <laughs> <Skull> and um, <laughs> Kestrel Super. Um, yeah. and that's in the posh places. <laughs> um, I'm from Nottingham, just in case anyone thought we were picking on it for no, <laughs> for absolutely no reason. Um, talking of the Midlands, have you been to Stoke
3: on the campaign? Uh, I was in Stoke a couple of weeks ago. And what this fine audience here don't realise, that uh, uh, Matt's uh, interest in Stoke is because Matt used to work for the Mayor of Stoke.
1: The elected Mayor. The elected
3: Mayor of Stoke. That's right. Yeah. Uh, LAUGHTER Matt's strategic brilliance in working for that elected mayor of Stoke <laughs> resulted in the elected mayor of Stoke being voted out in a referendum. So,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah we, didn't, we didn't lose an election. They had a referendum to abolish it altogether.
2: <laughs>
1: so at least we never lost to anyone. <laughs> I would say it was the undefeated <laughs> to elected mayor of Stoke. I was there for two years, man. I mean, that was... It's an incredible place. <laughs> and they had, and they, when I was working there, Mark Meredith, he was, the, the elector of Meristone, had nine BNP councillors on the council. Labour were in a coalition with the Lib Dems and the Tories. <laughs> which gave us, as a rainbow coalition, a one-seat majority over the BNP, the communists, and the independents. And the independents were basically just an assorted people who had been thrown out of other parties for various different criminal offences that didn't get custodial sentences. And this is true, including a guy called Lee Wanger, who was a councillor who got uh, charged under some sort of child porn offence but didn't get a custodial sentence and therefore didn't miss a full council meeting and therefore couldn't be deposed as a councillor. So he remained as a councillor. He became an independent. At the next election, the whole campaign was, don't vote for this guy, he's a paedophile, and he got re-elected. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I think he's still today, still today, a councillor in Stoke-on-Trent. Um, so there's hope for Gareth now. <laughs> but it is a very... I remember we would... It was, it was sort of... It was just after, I think, Gordon had become Prime Minister.
2: Yeah.
1: And the Labour Party in Stoke, a lot of it, very uh, old Labour, very white working class, very old Labour. And um, we would have these Labour Party meetings where <laughs> me and, uh, uh, and Mark, who was the mayor, would get lambasted for being Blairites. You bloody Blairites! And all this sort of thing. And it was really quite, sometimes, borderline violent. And then you go into the canteen and these old Labour councillors... We're having lunch with the BNP. Like, you just called us right wing and you're sat there with, like, Enoch's mom I was going, oh, he's all right. I went to school with him. We get the same buzz up, I was like, what the
2: fuck is
1: going on here? And the canteen at Stoke was the most depressing place in the world. I used to go there and have curry pretty much every day on my own. At the council chamber, and the playlist they had was all like depressing songs. <laughs> and the first song they would play at midday was uh, Bad Day by Daniel Powter. <laughs> I'd sit there on my own eating curry with You've Had a Bad Day. <laughs> and I'd think, This is fucking killing me. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So I manufactured that referendum and got myself out. of it.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> But yes, that that was Stoke is a is a is a is a strange place. Has it improved much?
3: It's a great place, <laughs> and it's going to elect a Labour MP tomorrow. Yeah,
1: See, yeah, yeah. there we go.
3: <laughs> and, and Copeland, it's going to elect a Labour MP tomorrow. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. I've been this... to Copeland as well in this uh, in and, recent weeks as well. And how's it looking up there? Oh, it's a late... <laughs> Copeland and Stoke are Labour heartland seats. The Labour Party's got to win them. And, uh, and I'm sure we'll win them. <laughs> I don't take anything for granted. Never take anything for granted in politics. But, you know, these are Labour areas. Uh, the Tories are effectively downgrading the maternity services in Copeland. They're going to shift maternity uh, unit up f- 50 minutes up a narrow A road. There's real anger about the future of the health service. In Copeland, you know, I think, I think when, when it comes to it, they'll want to send a mes- message to Theresa May.
1: The danger is they might send a message to Jeremy Corbyn instead.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's,
1: it must be difficult. I mean, it must be difficult for you anyway, because um, you worked with Gordon. So Jeremy knows what your politics are. He knows that you're not a kind of hard left guy. He knows that you're loyal to the party. You will serve a leader, but that you're in a sort of different position to him.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm in Jeremy's shadow cabinet, and, um, uh, you know, I'm a... Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm a... know, yeah, but I'm a, I'm a Labour man. Yeah. You know, you won't catch me resigning my membership of the Labour Party, Matt, because I don't like the current leader or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but... but um, or the one before. <laughs> uh, but, you know... You know, I am a Labour man, cut me in half, the Labour Party, you know, is in the centre of me, that's what I'm about. Bring on the saw! (laughs) 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 I'm from a working class family, and I, I I genuinely believe this, people think it's a bit cliched, a bit corny, if you want to change the world, you know, elected politics is one way to do it. Other people can do it in other ways, people can get involved in charity groups, some people do it through their faith groups, or whatever, I think... By getting elected, whether it's at a local council or at parliamentary level, that is how you improve things. And if you look at the history of the Labour Party, it's the party that created the NHS, it was the party that introduced race relations equality, it was the party that legalised homosexuality, who got rid of capital punishment, who introduced the Equal Pay Act, who introduced Sure Starts, who introduced the international development budgets, who introduced devolution, who introduced the minimum wage, who introduced maternity leave, paternity leave, and so on. It's a Labour Party. And when you look at society, when you look at the grotesque inequalities we see, if you look at the poverty, when you look at the fact that people, yes, they may well be in work, but they're getting uh, zero-hours contracts, agency work, their wages do not stretch to the end of the week. These issues are not self-correcting. You need a government that intervenes in the economy. Because if you just leave it to the Tories, you'll have a kind of laissez-faire, well, that's the way it is, there's nothing you can do about it. I fundamentally don't believe that which is why I'm in the Labour Party, and it doesn't matter for me who, who the leader is, a Labour government, a day of a Labour government, is better than a year of a Tory government, and that's why I'm going to serve in Jeremy Corbyn, shadow Cabinet, and do what I can to get a Labour government.
1: <laughs> so what, what was it then? You can't that, do anything that... now, can you? Oh, you get your chance, mate. <laughs> what, right, right now? Um, in terms of what politicised you then, at what age did you become... Yeah. So, what, what got you into politics and at what age?
3: Um, I mean, I grew up in uh, uh, North Manchester, in a very working class uh, community, a small town called Radcliffe, a uh, traditional sort of working class town which had been built on mainly uh, mills, paper mills, a little bit of coal, but not very much, but mainly sort of manufacturing, which all went in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and I just remember growing up. The unfairness, the deprivation, uh, the differences. I remember, I remember going to school and not really understanding why our school was sort of falling to pieces, and there were, you know, there there were buckets everywhere with the the roofs dripping in water, and it always felt to me deeply unfair. I always remember that very vividly from being about sort of ten or eleven. My dad was a labour sort of man; he was a union man. Uh, I remember when I was about five or six, my dad literally switching on the telly and saying, that's Michael Foot and that's Tony Benn and that's, you know, that's who we support. And then when Neil, Neil Kinnett came along, he said that was Neil, Neil Kinnett. Um, but then I think there's something else as well, which I've spoken about recently, which you alluded to in the introduction, is that I, I, a few weeks ago I decided to become, become public. My friends have known about this, obviously, but I've decided to speak very publicly about my dad's alcoholism. Mm. Um, uh, because here was, and I'm not a psychologist or whatever, so who knows, but he was, he was a very clever man, a northern working-class man, who failed his 11-plus, perhaps in a different set of circumstances could, was, would have been clever enough to go to university and go down a different road in life. But for whatever reason, he, you know, he left school at 15, was a working-class man in Salford, went to work on the docks in Salford, uh, and then ended up working as a croupier in a casino in Salford, but had a drink problem all his life. And from... My mum and dad divorced, and as a child, growing up, living with my dad at the weekends, uh, I had to deal with this, my dad's heavy drinking. It ebbed and flowed for, throughout the years, but he was a heavy drinker all the time, and there were, very, there were occasions when, as a sort of teenager or as a sort of a ten-year-old, I remember going to my dad's at the weekend, opening the fridge, and there being nothing in there apart from these huge big bottles of... Um, white wine, because he used to drink white wine, um, which, you know, cheap white wine you would get from the off-licence. Or I remember occasions when my dad was ostensibly supposed to be picking me up from school and I literally fell over. Um, he was so drunk. And and this was the days, of course, before mobile phones, so we had to go to the sort of the phone box and, uh, you know, I'd rang a taxi to take us home, even though actually he wasn't mm-hmm. very far away where we lived, but it was just easier to get a taxi. And, and I've spoken about this recently. Uh And I think a lot of that uh, also has driven me in life as well. That I've wanted to make a difference, I've wanted to change things. And what I've also now to begin to understand now that I'm an adult and I've looked into this this stuff, is that actually today in Britain there are 2.6 million children living with an alcoholic parent. Many of them in much less fortunate circumstances than me. My dad was never violent, he was never abusive. He was just drunk. He was quite a funny drunk, but it could obviously it's quite boring when the drunk person's just telling the same jokes or making the same. But you know what I mean. It wasn't. I, I never felt that you know oh, I don't want to say the wrong word or I don't want to step out of line in case it prompts a, a, an aggressive violent reaction. I never had that. Uh, but there were lots of children today in those circumstances, and I think so. As I say, growing up, I think that's made me quite a determined person to want to change things. But now I've got this job as the Shadow Health Secretary, and to answer your question about, well, you can't really do anything. Well, I think by speaking out, I can hopefully change things a little bit. And if I can get the government and charities and local organisations to agree to put in place a strategy and a set of policies to support children of alcoholics by speaking out, then I will have achieved something and it'll make it all worthwhile. So.
4: It's sort of incredible to think.
1: With, uh, how old are you then when you sort of were having to deal with that? Primary school age. Oh yeah, school?
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. From primary school age. Um, I mean, my dad had girlfriends, which, which came and went. I mean, they got fed up with his drinking, but so they came and went, and that would stabilise things for sort of you know six months a year or whatever. Um, but yeah, ever since I was a child, and 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 then um, uh, you know he. he, he he lost one of his jobs through drinking. Um, and that's when he was drinking very heavily. He was drinking a bottle of uh, whiskey a day at one that job. Um, obviously, it led to a, um, a you know a broken home. My mum couldn't put up with it any longer. No, who, who could blame her? So, throughout my life... But, you know, growing up, I didn't really think anything of it. That was just my life. I just got on with it. But I ended up growing up pretty, pretty fast, you know? And, obviously, as a teenager, you go through a whole range of emotions you feel embarrassed because you're a teenager and you want to be cool and you don't want your friends to think you're sort of you know you know you know you've got this embarrassing old man and all the rest of it I mean horrible actual emotions really but these are the sorts of things that teenagers think um uh, and today to be honest if I spoke out a few weeks ago I, I still I now feel immensely guilty also about speaking out because there's a part of me thinks am I betraying his memory am I letting down family members by speaking out so I do have very um, contradictory emotions about it as well um, yeah. but it was always there it's always part of my life and um, think, it's made me who I am I suppose yeah and if you're
1: in a position to do something about it yeah. I think the, the duty of the politician is to speak out isn't it that's the
2: yeah
1: that's the nature of the industry is to
2: yeah
1: is to give the benefit of your experience to improve the lives of others I suppose yeah but it must be hard
3: yeah and I mean, when we, when I spoke in the House of Commons about this two or three weeks ago, It went, it went like wildfire around Twitter and Facebook and all that because the, the government minister responding was was in tears and uh, it was a very emotional debate. There was other MPs speaking out as well about who had similar circumstances. Um, as I say, was it the right thing or not to speak out? I don't know. I do feel there's part of me who does feel slightly guilty about doing it, but if you can make a difference, uh, you know, it's not much. You're not on this... I don't want to sound really clichéd, but you're not on this earth very long, are you? So you've got to to make a difference where you can. And if I can make a difference for those 2.5 million children who, who at the moment, are suffering in silence, don't have any support whatsoever from schools or um, uh, the health service or GPs or whatever, if we can get government to put in place a proper strategy, then it makes it all worthwhile, really.
1: It'll make a huge difference to people. I mean, it makes... So I wonder why it's taking this long for
3: politicians to talk so openly and frankly about it. I don't know because it's, I mean, our political culture is quite macho, isn't it, if you think about it? We're very adversarial. Yes. It's, you know, the blue side versus the red side, and there's the yellow bit over here as well. I mean, it's very much um, a kind of, it's like a kind of, you know, punch-up, isn't it? Like a boxing match almost, the House of Commons. Yes. If you look at other parliaments across the world, they don't have that adversarial system that we have. Mm. By the way, I'm in favour of our adversarial system. I'm not. I'm not one of these people who proposes we get rid of it. I think it. I think it works, and I think people like it gen- br- broadly. Um, but it does reinforce a sense of macho-ness and perhaps sometimes mm, politicians, particularly male politicians, perhaps feel that they don't want to show vulnerability. Uh, they don't want to show. Um, you know that they're not you know they want to appear like they're superman because how many times if you think of all all the political campaigns we've been involved in
2: yeah.
3: you know you always project your politicians and your leaders as these great figures you know Vote, vote, you know, vote for Matt Ford. He's going to be a champion for Nottingham, you know, and all that sort of thing. And uh, you know we, You know, he's the man who's going to get things sorted out in Beeston. You know, Beeston. <laughs> you know, you know. You know. This,
1: this letter that I just put here is a disgrace, and I'm now going to clean it up. Yeah, yeah. Fucking you know. classic by-election. Uh,
3: absolutely. You know, he's going to clean things up in Hucknall. Vote for You know yeah. that kind of thing. Local so. voice, local choice. Yeah, local voice. So you know, we have a culture where we don't really encourage um, people. To we speak out, do we? Probably. No. But maybe it's changing, and maybe that's maybe I don't know. Maybe out some people out there might think, "Why the bloody is he going on about that for? Bloody soft bastard!" I don't
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be surprised. I think the reaction. I, I saw the speech, and I saw the reaction on the social media, and it was overwhelmingly positive, and rightly so.
3: Yeah. Well.
1: That must reassure you a bit.
3: Yeah, it does. But these are very, <coughs> they're very personal things, aren't they? And um, you know, my, my, drink in the end. You know, led to my father's um, you know passing. Um, you know, and I, I do feel guilty about speaking out. And but as I say, hopefully it will make a difference. So it's uh, we'll see.
1: I mean, there are all sorts of other worries that go along with it. I mean, do, do you worry about the implications for your own health? I mean, that's I have friends that have had sort of similar or slightly different scenarios, and they worry about themselves. They think, is it sort of is it in the
3: genes? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, uh, we, uh, we try, oh my mates are over there, they'll laugh at it, I mean, uh, yeah, like, you know, when I was probably a student and uh, uh, younger, you know, my 20s and so on, probably drank too much, we try not, I mean, we've got young kids now, so we can't really drink so much when you've got kids, because we get you up at first thing in the morning, don't they? So, um, but, that you know, there are times when I do wonder whether this thing, whether, you know, you're this is genetic and whether you need to watch it or not. But.
1: Yeah, well, enjoy your parade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's
3: making me feel guilty about bringing it up there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I suppose that's the point, isn't it? It's about encouraging a, a responsible drinking culture because I think part of the problem is, and I'm sort of guilty of it, in thinking that I think drink's great and I have a wonderful time on it. I think, I think, well, I'll be fine. I can control it. And then if you think of the days that you're drinking and the days that you're not drinking, sometimes... You can't remember. <laughs> you know, it, 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 booze is used for sort of comedy, isn't it? In, in, in soaps and in things, you know, having a drink's having a laugh, whereas actually the reality of it for people who can't control that desire is hell.
3: Well, that, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, my, da- my as I said, my dad was not a violent drunk. He wasn't aggressive. Um, he was probably quite, you know, for people who don't drink because he's just drunk and, you know, it's like when you're sober and someone's drunk and they're just sort of repeating themselves and telling the same gag over and over again, Matt. Uh, uh, but um, um, but I, remember, I remember going to a football match, I say a football match, but it was the Works football team playing, uh, the Albion Casino in Salford was playing another casino from Manchester called Sergeant York's Casino and an turf in the centre of Salford. And I was about eight or nine. And going to watch this, and obviously it was only an AstroTurf in Salford, but I, I, for me, I thought, well, you know, we we're going to sort of main road or you know Old Trafford or something. It was sort of you know really exciting. First time I've been to a football match. And I remember watching it, and I remember people laughing. My dad was in goal, which was odd, really, because like me, he's quite short, so I don't know why he was in goal in the first place. But anyway, and I remember the crowd jokingly shouting, "Oh, John Ash is in goal! Just all you need to do is throw a can of Stella that way, and he'll go for the Stella, not the ball." And that was a sort of jokey thing that the, his workmates were saying. I remember being an eight-year-old just thinking, well, that's my dad. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I remember thinking, that's not, I don't think that's funny, I think that's... And that always stuck in my mind. So we do laugh about drink and perhaps, you know, when I, perhaps when I, you know, with my friends who are here tonight, perhaps I would, you know, make, drink a bit too much, we we'll all laugh about it and go, oh, bloody hell, I wasn't, you know, a really skimful last night. You know, but, I mean, you laugh about it, but actually... That's the shadow cabinet these days. Yeah. Isn't <laughs> it? Uh, yeah, no, I know. Oh, you know what Jeremy's like, you know, <laughs> but yeah you know, oh, yeah. shots, everything, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Diane, no yeah.
2: yeah,
3: yeah, <laughs> crazy. Crazy. They want.
0: You
1: Yeah. Anyway, but it's, it's remarkable that you had that sort of antenna as an eight-year-old because I think as a kid, I'd have just laughed along with the adults. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I would have thought at that such a young age. Actually, that there's a there's a there's a disconnection there between what's funny and what's right.
2: Yeah.
1: So well, do you think from a young age
3: actually you were sort of blessed with political judgment? Gosh, my word. I don't know if I've got political judgment because I've come on your show tonight, man. But, I mean, um. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know, actually. I haven't really thought about that, actually, no. No. But that's that's something that I always find fascinating in politics,
1: is who has judgment at Not Just in terms of enjoying almost the sport of it, and just enjoying people's talent. Some people are great orators, some people have really good judgment, and I think judgment in politics, for me, is the thing that excites me the most. Mm. It's seeing people really understand how to handle a situation and get the best out of it, or what to do and what not to do. And I think that sort of shrewd judgment at the age of eight Oh, gosh, right. Probably served, maybe as well as the sense of injustice and the sense of having to be more mature because of the situation you father think, was in. I
3: think the situation definitely meant I had to grow up quickly. No question. You know, I was, uh, maybe not when I was eight, but certainly as 10-year-old, 11-year-old, I have to act like an adult, definitely. Um, and you know what? I, I, I mean, I joined the Labour Party when I was 15.
2: Yeah.
3: And I started going to Labour Party meetings when I was fifteen in uh, in Manchester. So what year was that around? Who's leader? Uh, Tony Blair had just become the leader. Yeah. But it it wasn't because of Tony Blair. It just happened to be that's when I turned fifteen. So was sort of ninety four. Yeah, yeah, that sort of time and Britpop, uh, Britpop, Oasis. I was, I was going to these meetings. I had hair like Noel Gallagher. And turn up at these meetings. <laughs> at the Bury South Labour Party. Of, uh, all right, it's all fucking come on top now, <laughs> You know, going to these. I don't know if anyone is in the Labour Party, but sometimes if you go to your first... Le- these days. <laughs> You know, your Labour Party meetings, they've probably changed a bit now, but in them days, you'd go along to these Labour Party meetings in North Manchester you know, and turn up as a 15-year-old and everybody else in the room was 80. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then they're all looking at you thinking, oh, gosh, we've got, you know, someone who's young, you know, and here's a leaflet round, and they'd go and do this and that. And, and I kept coming back and back and look where I am now, on your,
1: on your show. <laughs> <laughs> but, because but, I joined the party at 15 as well, yeah. uh, and I just remember sort of having that unquenchable desire to just be around politics and to yeah. learn about it and just yeah. be involved, knock doors, deliver leaflets, just like a sort of, a, as a fan of the whole yeah. party, really, just to, just to have some connection to it. Um, but for some people that dims yeah. and changes, but for you it didn't. What do you think it is that sustained you and kept you on track? I
2: don't
3: know, I just wanted to wanting to make a difference. And and as I say, this all sounds totally cliched and, um, but I, I, I have an absolutely unquenching belief that if you want to change things in society, you have to be involved in electoral politics. Because, I mean, people might disagree and that's fair enough, that's democracy. But, you know, for me, the Labour Party and the Labour movement has been and will be again the greatest force for social justice and fairness the country's seen. When you look at the achievements and of course there are things, of course there are uh, 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 things that Labour governments have done that people disagree with and of course they have made mistakes because we are all human beings, human beings make mistakes but there's been huge social progress in this country because of Labour governments, Ratley, Wilson, Callaghan, Blair and Brown and there will be huge social progress again in this country because of Labour governments.
1: Uh, You were um, at the heart, really, of, of new labour for a period. You must have been spotted by Gordon Brown at, at such a
3: young age. At what point were you sort of on his radar? How did that happen? Oh, gosh, right. Well, I went, yeah. I went to work for Gordon Brown when I was 25 as a very junior advisor to him, L- literally the sort of T-boy uh, level. Still, but still,
1: working for Gordon Brown at the age of 25 at any rank as an advisor is still an elevated position. In the overall pyramid of politics, isn't it? Yeah. How did he spot you? Where did that come well,
2: from? Well,
3: I was, I got involved in uh, the sort of young labour, labour student network, so the youth section of the Labour <laughs> Party. Which meant I got a job working in what was then called Millbank Tower for oh. the 2001 general election campaign. Nice. And uh, <laughs> you see, this you love all this, don't you? I mean,
1: Millbank Tower, as I call it, the old Wembley. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oh, lovely. The thing thing I love about mark he's made his career down in London here by passing himself off as a top Labour spin doctor. (laughs) (laughs) The reality is, because his former boss is sat over there, he was actually responsible for printing the leaflets for Northampton Borough Labour Not
1: just printing them, printing them (laughs) raw. Oh, I was in that office until two in the morning one night because I put the imprint on it. I was fucking... Uh,
3: My wife day. was Matt's boss That's for right, many yeah. years.
1: Yeah. Good laugh, wasn't it? She sat at the back. I think I got myself in trouble a bit. A bit. Well, <laughs> it was just... It was, I would... To be honest, when I first started... You, you get thrown in the deep end, don't you? As a, as a sort of member of staff running parliamentary selections and by-elections and things. I mean... For the first year, at least, I've never clue what I was doing. You get sent off to, you get sent off to run these campaigns. Thing, I've never run one before, but you have to turn up as like the guy from the Labour Party, telling these local people what to do, and it was fucking
3: hell. You could become leader.
1: <laughs> it was. It was. It, they were character-forming years. Yeah. Yeah. Years of failure. I don't think I ever won a by-election. No. Oh, <laughs> was so shit I mean that was I was always the one that had to dress up as like an animal <laughs> a fucking giraffe a chicken whatever it was whenever the lived Dems were in town I had to put on fancy dress and just follow them around with props <laughs> fucking nightmare good fun man um, so, where were we? You, you, were, you were in Labour <laughs> Students and you started going
3: for Yeah, I was for. in Labour Students in Millbank. This is the 2001 yeah. general election campaign. And they needed some uh, support in the, um, what in them days we, we used to call the Rapid Rebuttal Unit.
2: Nice.
3: Uh, which is a fancy style, but it's basically just a research unit. And uh, um, if you remember, William Hay uh, was the leader of the Tory Party and he was running a kind of Save the Pound. Roadshow 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 is right And, road how, show. Road show. Okay. and uh, my job But I think mean, where we ha- where we ended up It's quite interesting But my job was to go through The, the election Addresses Well the election leaflets the, the formal name for your election leaflet Is your election address uh, And this is obviously the days really. Google was only just starting It was obviously the days well, Way before Twitter And all that kind of stuff So That literally meant uh, Ringing up You know local parties around the country asking them if uh, their Tory candidate put out their election leaflet and um, uh, could they fax it to us? We had a fax machine, so could they fax it to us? And uh, um, I remember um, putting out this message, I think, saying we need the Tories' election addresses, so can you fax these leaflets through? And then we got a message saying from somebody in Cardiff saying, oh, uh, we've got the election address of the Tory. It's, it's coming through now on the fax. And we've got it on the fax. And it said the Tory Canada lives at 52 okay, Avenue. <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> thanks. Um, but anyway, I had to go through these election leaflets, these election addresses, and look for Tories who were saying they were in favour of leaving the European Union. Right? Because at that point, Tories saying leave, they wanted to leave the European Union was breaking the Hague line. And what happened is, I went through all of these and produced a document of all these different Tory candidates saying they want to leave the European Union, which Gordon Brown wanted. And he, he then went and uh, launched it at a press conference that day. And, um, and he did his kind of, uh, I cannot, uh, uh, um, uh, we can now reveal uh, <laughs> that a, uh, 150 Conservative candidates have broken the Hague line on Europe. This is a party in shambles and chaos, <laughs> that sort of thing. And actually, I mean, you know... And he learnt a lot from it. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, uh, and that became the sort of... Um, that's how Gordon spotted me, because it was this... The, the, this um, this piece of research, which seems very kind of banal and mild and tame by today's standards, actually, was seen in, in, in you know, 15 years, 16 years ago as being quite devastating, because it exposed the Tory party for being completely split on Europe, and it led the news, it led the, a load of newspapers front pages and so on, that's how he spotted me as a kind of young sort of 21, 22 year old. And then a couple of years later, um, I kept doing little research projects like that over the years for him and when I was 25, an opportunity opened up to work for him directly and I went wow. for it.
1: And what was he like to work for him as uh, that sort of first period?
3: <laughs> what was he like? <laughs> He's a, um, I am a great, you next expect he gave me a job, but I'm, but I'm a great fan of Gordon. I have huge affection for him. Uh, like every politician, he has his flaws, of course he does. Like every politician and every human, he gets things wrong, but he also did uh, phenomenal things. And, you know, you know, there are literally children alive today in some of the very poorest parts of the world because of the way he drove forward an international development agenda. Uh, there are children today in some of the poorest parts of the world getting a form of education because of the international development agenda he, he drove forward. And actually, when you look at what happened in 2007 when there was a, a financial crash, which was a global financial crash, he did put together the world response. You know, I was in Downing Street, Barack Obama, Angela Merkel were following Gordon Brown's lead on those matters. So, you know, I, I, think, I think history will actually be um, a lot kinder for him, funnily enough, than it will be for Gary Cameron, who, I think, through his own hubris push this country in, into Brexit, and I think history will uh, show Gordon to be a man of a man of substance, and David Cameron to be a sort of, uh, you know, sort of del- deletone, sort of popping Jay uh, who pushed Britain to Brexit. So I have, I have a few of that affection, but as you know, working for Gordon, though, you know, I'd go around all these events with Gordon, and come to visits in Nottingham
2: yeah.
3: uh, with Gordon, and that was sort of my job when I worked for him to go to different events uh, across the country with him, and sort of getting on the train with him and. Uh, uh, they, they were like, uh, sometimes it was just me and him. And honestly, uh, I remember there's a time he's it, on the train and he's, um, I'm sort of sat opposite him, and we had to do a speech at some event in, you know, some conference somewhere. And he's tapping away on his laptop, sort of... <laughs> and, the sh- and, and he can be quite intimidating thing. he's a big man, and he can be quite intimidating. And, and, the, and then you can see the sort of, the woman on the drinks trolley, He's coming down. It's one and it's one of those virgin pendolinos which is leaning. (laughs) (laughs) And he's shh it. And this woman's coming down on a drink trolley. (laughs) Oh, he's the Prime Minister, so she's like (laughs) and he's like, Shh um, would you like any drinks? Sparkling water. what, what was that? Promise like, up sparkling water. That's <laughs> like just a couple of sparkling waters, please. There you go. Thank you. And obviously this trolley's been shaking, the train's leaning, and he picks up this sparkling water, not really kind of tapping away his computer. And you can see what's coming, can't It's so been on this trolley, and he's, "I'm sat opposite him," and he goes to sort of undo it like that, and literally it goes into slow motion. I'm literally like,
4: oh! and he's like.
3: <laughs> water everywhere, like, and then and those then little tiny kind of vap, nap, virgin napkins you get, I'm trying to pat down the laptop, going, the laptop's not working, and he's going, the laptop, the laptop, the laptop, and I'm like, it's okay, it'll be okay, don't worry, don't worry, the laptop, don't, don't, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, so there were lots of incidents like that, like like him. But also, anyway, we've got the laptop working. And every single event we would go to with Gordon, he would tell the same jokes. Oh God! Uh, God. Y- you know about that. And
1: uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, some of us do that for a living. He
3: right? <laughs> uh, 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 would. Uh, so every event we would go to, every single every Labour Party dinner or regional conference or uh, you know uh, business conference or whatever, he would tell a joke about the Swedish Social Democratic uh, Prime Minister. Do you know this one? <laughs> Do you know this one? The Swedish Social Democratic Prime Minister. Oh, yes. Who went to visit President Reagan. But what sort of... Yeah, don't, oh. don't spoil it. Anyway, so he would go and, and he would sell this joke and he would go... And, of course, the, the great uh, Swedish uh, Social Democrat, Ola Parme uh, went to visit President Reagan. And President Reagan said to his advisers, I'm not meeting that communist. To which his advisor said, no, Mr. President, he's an anti-communist. To which Reagan said, I don't care what kind of communist he is. <laughs> oh. <laughs> everywhere, everywhere we went, it's all that
1: day. And it's still, it's still <laughs> working there. Yeah,
3: yeah.
1: There's the three envelopes joke you
3: used to have as well. Oh, the, <laughs> the three envelopes, yeah. Yeah,
1: you like that one, don't you? I think because it had a structure I quite liked. It was something like, is it when you become chancellor? Yeah. Your predecessor hands over three envelopes. And he says, oh, when your first crisis, open the first envelope. And they open the first envelope and it says, blame your predecessor. And on the second crisis, you open the second envelope and it says, blame the statistics so I blame the statistics and you, uh, on your third crisis you me the th- third envelope and it says start rating three envelopes. was <laughs> <laughs> one I, I, and I'm never sure whether I heard him say it or whether I read it in a book um, the one about Peter Mandelson needing some money he says Peter Mandelson uh, asked me for uh, 10p to phone a friend from a phone box I said there's 20p phone them all. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, that might be one of those apocryphal tales. Yeah, I'm not sure yeah, if ever, yeah. ever, ever said it. But could he Because I suppose what I was getting at is what sort of line manager was he? Like what was he <laughs> like not in terms of like setting targets, but I imagine him
3: to be quite a fatherly individual. Uh, <laughs> well he was he was he was, he was brilliant in so many ways. I and mean, he was a genius in some ways. He is a genius, I suppose. Uh, but he was hard-working, uh, he could be tough to work for, uh, you know, if he got things wrong, uh, he wasn't shy about pointing that out, uh, <laughs> if I could put it like that, perhaps. So what sort of stuff would he say, Jonathan, <laughs> uh, fucking hell? <laughs> uh, uh,
2: useless!
3: <laughs> <laughs> would he say that, useless? Uh, um, I remember, I remember, um, <laughs> it wasn't me actually, it wasn't me actually, but there's a story where... There was a visit and everything went wrong because sometimes things do get wrong, you know, people... You go in these events, you know, and there were sort of protesters shouting and then, you, you know, missed the train and, uh, you know, he left his papers somewhere. You know, everything that possibly could go wrong on on this sort of day out uh, did... On this <laughs> day out? Day out. <laughs> the sandwiches were off. <laughs> You know, we forgot the tickets to the zoo. I mean, it was like that. Um, no, and and, and I, it wasn't me. I think it was a civil servant. He just got in the back of the car after this long day, where everything was just going wrong, and he just got in the back of the car. And he just turned to whoever it was sat with him and just went, "Too many mistakes." <laughs>
1: god, <get the> hell. <laughs> that would <laughs> shit me
3: off. Um, but um, oh my god. But. But he taught me so much, he taught me so much, and as I say, he was a phenomenal figure and I'm, I'm still in touch with him a lot and talk to him, get a lot of good advice from him still to this day, and, uh, you know, I do think that history will be very kind to him, actually.
1: I think it will. Um, so how is he now? Is, do you think that, um, but, but seriously, because I think maybe government felt like a bit of a burden to him in the end,
3: is he sort of more relaxed now? and more? Well, he's, Well, he does a lot of work with the UN on child poverty, international child poverty. And uh, he's been doing a lot of work on the, uh, on various uh, international issues around, um, uh, uh, you know, the campaign for the um, the children who have been kidnapped in, I think, Nigeria, and he's been trying to get the, those children back and things like that. So oh, he's involved t- in t- those t- different... T- yeah. yeah, those sorts of projects across the globe, he's very much involved in, and uh, he's very effective on it. So, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, we do... I mean, he's, he's left the House of Commons now, obviously, and... Uh, he doesn't strike me as the type who would want to go in the House of Lords, so he's so he's still making an impact. Just it's more on the international stage now.
1: With the House of Lords now, there's this whole debate because of Brexit um, and the, the sort of function of the House of Lords, and it, it strikes me as quite peculiar that all of a sudden the Conservative Party House of Lords reform seems to be creeping up the agenda, <laughs> including the the the, the 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 potential to even abolish it. I mean, do you think that there is there is the potential for this uh, departure from the European Union debate to trigger? serious constitutional reform?
3: Well, I don't think they're really going to abolish the House of Lords, are they? I mean the, 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 I mean, the House of Lords is not going to block the Brexit process. I mean, I voted for Remain. I was passionate at Remain. I think, I, I think it was a mistake, but, you know, I accept the democratic decision of the country. Uh, you know, it is what it is, um, sadly. Uh, the Lords is not elected. It cannot block Brexit. It can, it, it's entirely legitimate for the Lords to ask questions to scrutinise the government's plan, uh, uh, to point out whether government uh, uh, proposals are misguided and will damage the country. That's entirely legitimate, but the Lords is not going to block it in the end. So when the Tories say, oh, we'll abolish the House of Lords, the Tory party, Theresa May's Tory party, is not gonna abolish the House of Lords. It's not gonna have time to abolish the House of Lords. (laughs) All Parliament, all, all we're gonna be doing in the House of Commons for the next two years is Brexit legislation. Not won't be able to fit in a House of Lords abolition bill. <laughs> and even if they did, it's got to go through the House of Lords as well. <laughs> so it's, so it's, it's, it's a hollow sort of nonsense, you know, threat from the Tories. And, and what do you, it's as as, as not just a, as a, as a
1: front-line, front-bench Labour politician, but as someone who's worked at the highest levels in government, mm make of our relationship with President Trump because I think... <laughs> but it's tricky for Theresa May because she has to have some sort of relationship with him. I mean, if you were advising her, what would you advise her to do with regards to her relationship with, with Trump?
3: Um, <laughs> well, we've got to have a relationship with the United States. You know, he's, yeah. the, he's the president. You know, we cannot pretend he's not elected as president. I don't think he should have a fancy old bells and all whistles, state visit, you know, all the pomp and circumstance, addressing parliament and all that. He can come here and have uh, um, you know, uh, meetings, um, you know, you might be able to get him up here on your show one night and that sort of thing. Um, I'd uh, love to have him. Uh, uh, but, um, you know, you've got, you know, she's got to have some form of relationship. Although, going about to Gordon Brown, when he, when he first met, went to meet Bush, he, yeah. of course, he kept calling him... Uh, Mr. President, which was a very different relationship. He, si- he s- deliberately signaled a different, very different type of relationship between him and George Bush than what Tony Blair had with George Bush. Mm. But then, of course, when Barack Obama came along, we had a very close uh, relationship with Barack Obama. I believe uh, Emily was telling me you, you you once got Barack Obama to sign a poster for a low party raffle. Is oh, that sorry, right? No, <laughs> <laughs> like we it. don't want to go there. That but might have been. <laughs>
1: I might have claimed it was
2: something
3: about Barack <laughs> Obama. <laughs> <laughs> I met Barack Obama, you know. Oh, yeah, what was he like? Um, of course, I, I, I showed him where the toilets were. <laughs> 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 it sounds like it was at a house party. <laughs> <laughs> when I worked in 10 Downing Street, his office, um, or the, my, the office I worked in, was next to the state rooms where Gordon Brown was meeting Barack Obama. Uh, and we worked out. <laughs> <But> <laughs> if Barack Obama needed the gents, yeah. he would have to walk through the office. And about halfway through the meeting, he came out, and I was just sat there tap- tapping away on <laughs> my computer. Uh, <laughs> of course, you're supposed to stand up with the American president, Watson, but we were too cool. We just carried on tapping away the pool. And he went, hey, where are the washrooms? And we just went, over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It must be quite, quite childish, that, really, isn't it, in retrospect? Well,
1: it's childish, but the, 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 something I often wonder is, if you're dealing with someone who is a world leader anyway... Yeah, you can't really let on that you're excited to meet anyone, can you? That's not cool to go,
0: oh, my God, it's the president.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to sort of say, yeah, go easy on the bog roll, mate. Someone's left the sport in there. Yeah. I don't know who that was. It was yeah, you, <laughs> yeah I'd leave it a bit if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> you can't... You, but you would have to sort of play it cool a bit, wouldn't you? Yeah. Because you, can't, you can't sort of let on. Um, but with Trump, if you, let's say, Labour... Um, No, let's not say that. (laughs) Uh, uh, No, but let's say Labour win an election sometime that coincides with the Trump presidency. um, Or there's some sort of national government forged in a war that happens that might (laughs) be More uh, more sort of lightly root in. um, And you met him. And... um, (laughs) Would you
3: would would in where, what, in what possible circumstances am I going to meet? Dr. Well, let's Tom? say he
1: gets a state visit and they say we want the Privy Council
3: there.
2: Right. <laughs> oh.
3: Well, that assumes and, uh, I'm the Privy Council, isn't it? I might not be. Are you a member of the Privy Council? No, of course I'm not a member of the Privy Council. You've got to be like, in the Cabinet to be on the Privy, Privy Council. Yeah, you the leader of the Opposition gets in. The Shadow Chancellor? This... Yeah, Shadow Chancellor gets it. I'm, I'm just the Shadow Health Secretary. Yeah, but who knows what's going to happen, right? So, yeah.
1: <laughs> It's like a Geoffrey Archer novel, right? So you, <laughs> so if, if such as, it's like a fucking House of Cards. Like, if someone dies, and basically, if you're in the Privy Council when Donald Trump's still president, and they say he wants a, a private meeting with the Privy Council, and the press is saying, oh, are you going to meet the president? you'd well, have,
3: have to meet him, wouldn't you? But you don't have, you know... But just because you meet somebody doesn't mean you agree with them. I mean, he's got quite obnoxious, disgusting views on things, hasn't he, really? But, you know, he's the president of America. You'd have to meet him if... That was the protocol, but just because you meet somebody doesn't mean you're going along with all his sort of daft <laughs> ideas, does it? So if he gets a state
1: visit uh, and they say he's going to address both House of Parliament and Westminster Hall, would you go to that, would you boycott it, or what would you do?
3: Um, well, if he gets, I think if he gets to address Parliament on this particular state visit, I, won't, I probably won't go to it. I won't go to it. But even out of interest... Why do I need to go to I'll just come to you and see your impressions of it. <laughs> I just think... Uh, you, I, you can I, have my ticket.
1: Deal. <laughs> right. A new petition will be appearing on
3: that
1: <laughs> fucking website. <laughs> Support Donald Trump's state visit. Um, <laughs> get I'd love to have a ticket to that. But would you say to him, you know, if, if you've got the chance to advise him, would you say, turn it down a bit, Donald, or...? <laughs>
3: Turn it down a bit, Donald.
1: <laughs> Turn it down a bit. You know, What if you were prime minister?
3: I'm not going to be the prime minister. Would you like to be? No. Well, can you? I can't be the prime minister. Can
2: you Why really? not? Oh,
3: give over! Really? <laughs> I mean, the fact that
1: you say stuff like that would make. me Oh, give over, man! I mean, who told you about his bus service and about uh, what more does this bloody opposition want out of his government? Crikey! Um, I bet you.
3: You're you Oh, I don't. Driven? I, I no. I don't know. There's low. Look, you know, you can't move in low party for people wanting to be bloody prime <laughs> uh, you, know, uh, you know, they're all
2: they're all. Shit!
3: Shit! You've got a line in the end. <laughs> tell you something, Matt. He's going to have your show next week. I tell you. <laughs> Oh, my word.
1: Um, well, let's open up the floor to questions, then. Uh, we can take uh, two or three. Uh, we'll bring the house on. up. So clearly indicate if you'd like to ask a question, we should bring a microphone uh, to you. Um, yes, well, let's start with... Uh, <laughs> let's start with the funniest man in the room.
2: <laughs>
1: if, don't know, if people indicate, and then I can know where uh, people would like to come in. Thanks. Um...
4: I'd just say, as as, as someone who's probably um, as close to uh, your views as anyone in the room, I can't think of anything more depressing than the fact that you won't have any position in power in the next few years. What what can the Labour Party do now to put yourself in a position where you can do the things that you want to talk about tonight? You've talked about what you want to do, but how do you find a position of power? Because it feels to me that you're so far removed from the reality of power right now. It's a pretty depressing situation for people like me. Yeah. Are we, are we doing these in threes or we We'll, doing we'll them? do
1: them individually. If, if, is there anyone that likes a question so I can come to them? OK, we'll just take this for now.
3: I mean, yeah, of course. You're quite right. I mean, the opinion polls are very challenging <laughs> for the low part at the moment, and that does not fill me with uh, any cheeriness. Uh, but you can't give up. You cannot give up in life. You've got to keep fighting for what you believe in. And what the Labour Party has got to do is combine a sense of idealism about wanting to improve uh, the conditions of society for people with a sense of realism, i.e. offering practical solutions to people's everyday lives, whether that is the future of the health service, which I'm obviously very interested in, or about improving schools for everybody, Or or doing something about the uh, grotesque way in which people are abused through zero-hours contracts and uh, agency work and and so on. Or whatever it is, we have got to put forward a practical set of policies that win people over. But I'm well aware... Why are you giving up now? Well, I'm I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up because, you know, I passionately believe in the Labour Party and I passionately believe that the Labour Party will offer a credible set of uh, policies to people and offer an alternative people. But look, the opinion polls are not easy for Labour at the moment. And We can't pretend any- anything other. And, you know, these seats that we're fighting tomorrow, we've got to win. And then we've got to go on to what is the county council elections in places like Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire, where Matt worked when he worked for the Labour Party many years ago.
1: Don't uh, put me back in charge.
3: Uh, um, <laughs> we've got to win. Yeah, but we've got to win in those areas.
4: Yeah. So, so, so one, one last point, to would, you, would you, if you had to... Would you be in a position to say to Jeremy Corbyn, this isn't
3: working, and you have to stop him? But well, Jeremy's so elected... Are you? Are, are, do you want to, Do you want Jeremy to step down as the leader like, of no, Labour? No, 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 I,
4: I don't, because I'm not in a position to ask that question. But would you, would you say to someone like Jeremy and say, this isn't working, and you have to stop him? But down. Jeremy's
3: been elected now by the members, twice.
4: Yeah, but I know you've asked that question. Already. Well, He's
3: been elected twice by the members, so I'm not going to say to Jeremy, <laughs> you know, step down. And actually, the the... the The situation the Labour Party faces isn't about Jeremy Corbyn. It's the responsibility of all of us in the Labour Party. If we're not doing well enough in the opinion polls, I am part of that. That is partly my responsibility as well, not just as a member of the Shadow Cabinet, but as a Labour MP as well. All of us across the Labour Party have got to show some leadership and got to show that we're striving to win. Now there are some people in the Labour Party, or perhaps, perhaps not in the Labour Party, but you do sometimes hear. Well, you know, it's you know, it's, you know, it's not about winning elections because if you're about winning elections, that's compromising your principles. Absolutely not, because the ultimate betrayal of the people that we are in politics to represent is allowing them to suffer under a Tory government and allowing, it e- allowing a Tory government to easily get re-elected. And get rid of Jeremy. Well, Jeremy is our leader, though. And
1: it's well, uh, there was a question over here. Yep. Hello.
4: Hello. Hello, hi. So, I was just wondering, it's something that I'm really bemused by as a kind of Labour voter yeah. in the past. For as long as I can remember, splits in the, about Europe has been a Conservative yeah. Party, you know, decades the Conservative Party has been fighting about that. We get months of Jeremy Corbyn. All of a sudden, it's Labour. <laughs> that's their issue. You know, the know, front page of the papers is splits in the Labour yeah. Party. What about Europe? But I just wanted to ask, what's your views on that? How How did that come about? You know, it that's that's never happened in my lifetime. I don't think it's always been as you were talking about earlier, Gordon Brown. That that's an issue to go for the Conservatives on for a Labour Party. What, what happens now?
3: Well, it is extraordinary the extent that the Tory Party has now become completely united about pushing this country into what we call a hard Brexit. It's quite remarkable to think that Theresa May apparently was in favour of Remain last year, but now is pushing for the very hardest sort of John Redwood-esque, Bill Cash-esque, UKIP-esque Brexit possible, you know, which is pushing us out of the single market, pushing us out of all kinds of economic agreements, which I believe will do great damage to the UK economy and the prosperity of people. Who live here. Why is the Labour Party apparently divided? Because the Labour Party represents parts of the country that voted in diametrically different ways. My own Leicester constituency voted to remain in the European Union, and people who live in my Leicester constituency are very upset about Brexit. But the Labour Party also represents seats like Mansfield, 45 minutes up the road from Leicester, who voted very heavily to leave. So the Labour Party voters, if you like, Uh, uh, a split on this, which is why we've been through a period of uh, 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 some turbulence in the Labour Party. But actually now I think we we can, as a party, unite again, because we've now all sort of understand, as much as it upsets us and causes us difficulty, that Britain is leaving, sadly, the European Union. So the question now is, what do we campaign for? What do we say, what is our vision of Britain outside the European Union? How do we get the very best trading relationships with the rest of Europe? How do we get a, uh, an immigration system that is fair? Because I know, for example, from my role as the Shadow Health Secretary, that there are uh, numbers of people who come from Europe to work in our health service and to work in the care homes, looking after our, our elderly relatives. If those people didn't come to this country, the NHS and our social care sector would literally grind to a halt. So we have got to now ask ourselves, what relationship do we want with the rest of Europe? What relationship do we want to have with Europe to allow people to come and work here? But but Theresa May is pushing us in a direction of uh, probably tariffs on trade, uh, severe restrictions on uh, uh, on work permits and so on, which I think is going to do as economic damage. So, yes, there has been some difficulties, but I think the Labour Party can unite again now.
1: we okay, we've got time for one more question. Anyone else? Yes? Yeah?
4: No, this, this guy... Um, You've talked a lot tonight about um, Labour past um, successes under Blair and Brown, and you've also talked a lot tonight about what you're against um, in terms of Jeremy Hunt and grammar schools and that sort of thing. I'm just not quite clear, and it's following on from your answer to the previous question, what it is you're actually for, what is your alternative vision? What am I
3: for? Well, I'm for a proper proper world-class National Health Service. I'm for giving every child the very best education in life, not a dividend. Well you say they're easy answers, they're not being delivered are they? They're not being delivered. But this is what we want to see delivered in society. We want a fairer society. We don't want an economy where people have to rely on zero-hours contracts. We don't want an economy where people in work are going home, picking up their children and then going up to pick up a food parcel at a food bank. We want them to be paid a proper wage in work. So these are the things I am for. You're 13
2: years in government
3: then? Yeah. Yeah, and we created Sure Start Centres. We created tax credits. We lifted a million children out of poverty. We lifted a million pensioners out of poverty. We reintroduced the earnings link for the pension. We introduced free entry to museums. We introduced we got rid of Section 28. We introduced civil partnerships. We introduced the minimum wage. We introduced devolution in Scotland, in Wales, in Northern Ireland. I tell, and, we, and seven years into that Labour government, we were in the biggest hospital building programme in our history. We were way, well on the way to the lowest waiting times in the history of the NHS and the highest satisfaction ratings in the NHS ever. Seven years into this government, we've got 52,000 people waiting on trolleys in corridors and an A&E crisis and nurses leaving our NHS. That's the difference between a Labour government and a Tory government.
1: There you go. What better note to end on? <laughs> uh, Indeed, uh, a, a phenomenal answer, uh, and thank you for all the questions, and thank you for all for uh, coming out tonight, um, I guess in the future, are next month, Nicky Morgan, uh, in April, uh, I'm still working on that, we will get that announced as soon as possible, May, Andy Burnham, June William Hague. Oh, wow. Oh, indeed. <laughs> uh, it'll be it. Um, it's been a phenomenal night, um, so thank you all for coming, but ladies and gentlemen, for being so honest funny and insightful. Mr. <laughs> <Listen>, Jonathan Ashworth. <laughs> there you go, that was Jonathan Ashworth, Labour's shadow, Secretary of State for Health. Um, it was an interesting ending to the interview. It's always difficult when an audience member or, and, uh, and a guest bristle with each other. I'm never quite sure how far to, to defend one or the other, but uh, I think they both handled themselves uh, superbly in the end. And uh, Jonathan ending on that rally of uh, Labour's achievements in government which for some people it's always helpful to be uh, reminded of, depending on uh, your view of things. Um, he's a fascinating character, Jonathan, and I think uh, part of a new breed of politician um, who he's still fiercely intellectual. He's blessed with a real political antenna and with, with real political judgement, but he's also prepared to, to show his vulnerability uh, and talk about issues that perhaps previous generations of particularly male politicians um, wouldn't feel comfortable talking about. Um, and obviously his father's alcoholism is is part of that. And um, I think there's a lesson in there for, not just for this generation, but for future ones as well, about how we conduct ourselves. I enjoy the adversarial nature of politics, not just for entertainment. I actually think that overall it's a positive thing um, to an extent, but I think the point that he makes that um, people have to feel more comfortable talking about things that previously they were perhaps embarrassed or felt ashamed of Uh, And that he has a duty to do that as a politician, to help other people, because otherwise, what else are politicians for? Next month's guest is Nicky Morgan. April's guest is still to be confirmed. May's guest is Andy Burnham. June's guest is William Hague. I think all of those shows have sold out, but if you do want to try and get tickets, do go to the website. The venue isn't called the St James Theatre anymore. It's called The Other Palace. Um, but if you Google that and check on the website, that sometimes on the day there are returns. So check my Twitter feed, at Matt Ford. Also, um, I've got a second series of unspun starting, and tickets for that are free. You can get uh, audience tickets for that at tvrecordings.com. We start recording on the 28th of February, which is in just a few days' time. Uh, and that's for six weeks, so do come along to that. Thank you for downloading, as always. And uh, do follow um, Jonathan on Twitter and follow his career. He's uh, almost certainly a a big star in Labour's future. And it was a real, real pleasure talking to him. See you next time.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.